Welcome, listeners, to the First Things podcast, the editor's desk. I'm Rusty Reno. I'm the editor of First Things. And we use these podcasts to chat with authors of material in the recent issues of First Things magazine. And it's my pleasure to welcome Philip Pilkington, the author of Generation Against Generation, a meditation on not the coming culture war, but rather the coming generational war. Welcome to the podcast, Philip. Thanks very much, Rusty. It's good to be home. Um, what What is the driver of the war or conflict, or you can maybe just say, at least at this point, the tension between the generations? Well, I mean, the main driver is basically demographic change. Stemming from the uh, reduction in fertility rates that we've seen uh, since the baby boomer generation uh, was born. Uh, so it's also their birth rates that are obviously falling. Um, but it seems to be getting worse with each passing generation. This has been, um, as I said in the piece, this has been a pretty long staple uh, discussion in economic circles and in finance circles, um, which is both of my background. I'm, I'm an economist, but I worked in finance for, for nearly a decade. And it's been pretty widely known there because um, in, in pretty standard economic models, um, the size of the labor force uh, determines um, much of your long-term economic growth. Um, it's the size of the labor force and technology. Um, and in finance circles, we're pretty much I mean, most of finance is managing, at least the finance I worked in, is managing uh, pension funds. Um, and so the demographic structure of the population is obviously very important for that. Um, so the demographic changes have been known for a while. Um, I'd say these discussions have been going on at least since the early 1990s. Um, but they haven't really trickled down to any other level. Um, economists, in policy discussion, it does come up. Economists talk about, um, in America, they call them entitlement spending. Um, they also discuss it with rel um, relative to so social, social security and so on. These discussions do come up, um, but they, I've always seen them as being very confined to, uh, to very specific policy areas. Whereas, yeah, we do um, here, in the, here in the States, you know, we have not enough people contributing to Social Security is why it's going to go bankrupt, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's that, kind that, of been a common fare for the last 20 years. That's exactly. And so that would be the level of discussion that it's at currently in policy space, definitely. Um, and I just don't think that that is, is sufficient to deal with the scale of the problem. So um, it's only been very recently that, um, that, that a broader... Um, look at this has begun. It began with the book that I, I cited in the piece by Charles Goodhart, and uh, I think his name's Pradhan, Mano Pradhan. Um, and they, uh, again, it's, 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 if, if, if listeners do go and read that book, it is a very technical macroeconomics book, but I, I give it a large amount of credit that it, it at least looks at the broader implications of demographic change. So not just for social security pay-ins and whether social security will go bankrupt. It looks at, at how it will affect the entire structure of the economy. And to me, that brings it one step up in analysis. But the next step seems to me, okay, well, now that we have a reasonable understanding of what it'll do to the structure of the macroeconomy, what will that do to culture and politics and, and interpersonal relations and everything like that? And I think that's the next stage that we have to start having that discussion. 
I'll just say finally before we move on that that one of the reasons I think that this hasn't been discussed as well is because we haven't really seen the effects. As you say, the social security debate, uh, specifically in America, it goes on or in the Peterson Institute, I believe. That's been going on for 20 years, you're correct, but it hasn't happened yet. And so when people haven't seen any implications of these things, it's, it's an abstraction. And um, I think that we are now moving into a territory where we are starting to see the very initial effects of this. And I think it'll be specifically my generation, I'm 34 years old, I think it'll be my generation that experiences the, the beginnings of the very serious effects. You identify really the, the thing that pops out is uh, inflation. Uh, too many old consumers with savings chasing too few goods produced by uh, a declining pool of workers. Yeah, that's correct. So this is, again, going back to Goodhart's book, where I have to give credit where credit is due on that one. Um, he really managed to move the debate forward. Prior to that, as I said before, it was really focused on long-term economic growth. The, the, the basic, in, in, um, the basic uh, um, idea behind all of the macroeconomics is simple and can be said in a sentence. Less young people relative to old people means less people in the labor force relative to the consumption pool. And so, so the amount of stuff being produced will fall because there will be less people to produce it. And that's usually as far as things go in the policy discussion. So they really only talk about lower growth and so on. But lower growth, I've always thought, is fairly abstract. We've had lower growth for the past 10 years after the great financial crisis than we did in the 90s. It hasn't really, I mean, it has had an impact. We can see um, uh, demonstrations against Occupy Wall Street. Young people are clearly getting a bit frazzled by the job market. But I, I don't think low growth quite captures the kind of dynamics that this introduces. Goodhart's book, I think, um, introduces the inflation concept. And I think it's really important because when you start um, when you start to think of it, economists call it statics versus dynamics. So the statics is kind of a long-term growth path. And this is how it's been discussed. What is the equilibrium long-term uh, uh, implications for GDP growth? That's not as interesting as the dynamic effects. And the first dynamic effect that immediately stands out is inflation. And again, it's not that complicated to understand. If there are less people producing goods, relative to the overall population. So if the number of people producing the goods shrinks from 75% to 50% of the population as the population ages, there will simply be less goods. And since there is physically less goods, everyone has to get less on average, right? Now, rich people could get more, poor people could get even less. Fine, there's a distributionary component there. But on average, people have to get less. And the way that economies, market economies, typically apportion substantially less goods is through price increases, um, which, by the way, it, we, can we are starting to see now. This doesn't have to do with the aging of the population, but the supply chain crisis that we're currently experiencing, the fact that there's ports, uh, ships waiting in port that can't dock and so on, you're seeing the lack of goods reflected in the rising prices, and this, Goodhart is pointing out that this is a that, that this is the first very strong, very noticeable dynamic effect that you'll start to see when the labor force shrinks relative to the overall population. We there is one area where I think young people are experiencing this dynamic, and that's the property market. Um, and I had before I read your piece, I hadn't thought about it, but the uh, People often look back in the post-war 
the Trente Glorieuse, the 30 glorious years from 45 to 75 that the French refer to. And if you think back, you have tremendous destruction of capital <laughs> during World War II. And so there's very little capital chasing um, uh, chasing um, uh, property. Uh, and so the wage earning baby boomer generation or the wage earning um, generation in the 50s and 60s, uh, the value of wages relative to capital goods was very high. Um, and then, but it seems like in the last 20 years it's flipped. And now you have a tremendous amount of global capital chasing around for properties to invest in. Yeah. And I never thought a, about the generational aspect. It just exacerbates that problem. A hundred percent. This is, I, this has driven me crazy. Um, since I've been working in finance, everyone everywhere assumes that the higher structural property prices that we've seen since the mid 1990s are, are due to a reduction in supply of housing. Every single time the bubble inflates in the housing market, we tell ourselves it's a supply side issue. It's because we're not building enough. And by the way, there's always somebody from the construction industry waiting on hand to tell you that. And they've plenty of lobbyists in DC, I know for a fact. They're always there to tell you that. It's the same in the UK where I live. It's the same in Ireland where I'm from. I've seen this trick a million times. But the fact of the matter is the market economies are pretty good at allocating physical capital resources. After 30 years, you're telling me we can't allocate enough capital to, to the construction industry? Where, as you said, during the glorious 30, we could. What has happened to the construction industry that it's become so inefficient at allocating capital? It's not a credible explanation. A much more credible explanation is the property is an unusual good. It's not like a um, pair of shoes or a handbag. Well, maybe more like a handbag because they can be assets too. It's not like a piece of fruit or a pair of shoes or a McDonald's hamburger. It's, a, it's, a, it's simultaneously an asset and a consumption good. Um, you have to live in it, but if you own it, it fluctuates in value, typically increases over the long term. And everybody knows this. Everybody knows this when they're making their planning. When they look over, when they go to their will, everyone knows this. They fill it out. They don't put their shoes in the will anymore. Maybe they did that 200 years ago. They don't do that anymore <laughs> because shoes aren't an asset, but they put their property in the will. And they can sell plenty of accountants and lawyers figuring out how to leave that property in the most tax efficient manner possible. It's so obvious if you think about it, the property is more an asset than it is a consumption good, especially in our day and age. But that's always been the case. Land has always been an asset. Under feudalism, land was pretty much the only asset. So land is actually a more historic asset than capital goods or than equities or than bonds or anything else. And so it's, it's, it's very frustrating for me, to me anyway, that people don't seem to understand that you need to treat the property market like an asset market. Now, that's where we come to the issue that you raised and the issue that I raised in the piece, that if you have a situation where you have an awful lot of old people relative to young people, you all have much more accumulated savings in the economy because old people have been saving their whole working life. People really only start to save on average in their 30s. In their 20s, they, 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 they earn to consume pretty much. I mean, most people, most middle-class people earn to consume in their 20s. In their 30s, they start to settle down. Settling down late, obviously, is part of the problem here. They, In their 30s, they start to settle down. They start to accumulate some financial wealth. By their 40s, they're accumulating at the maximum. 40s and 50s, they're accumulating at their maximum rate. And by the time they hit their 60s, they have probably peaked in terms of the amount of 
of uh, savings that they've accumulated. That savings needs to go somewhere. And it, it, right now you're seeing that it's flowing into every asset market possible. Interest rates are incredibly low. Um, equities are very, very highly valued, which in finance terms means their future return is likely to be less than it would be if they weren't uh, so highly valued. So across the board, some people call it in finance markets an everything bubble. Well, one of the logical places that this stuff goes is also into property. And so I think that this is the, by far the most obvious um, uh, explanation of the extremely high valued property. Um, and this is, as you say, this is, this is the initial effect that we're seeing. It's the first initial effect that we're seeing of this long-term demographic change. Th this effect can exist even while, to put it bluntly, boomers are still alive because it's an immediate effect of accumulation of savings. So you see it immediately when the when the distribution uh, of property changes. Um, but it will only get worse and worse, logically. As, as the population grays, the pool of saving relative to everyone, relative to the amount of GDP or workers, however, however you want to measure it, will grow and grow. And property is not going to stop being an attractive asset. And in fact, if you want to be really doomer about it, I don't even see that governments can actually counteract that trend, trend without making things worse. It's not clear to me. I mean, people, where would you go? You might talk about maybe rent controls, for example. So then you'd have old people who own all the property, they're renting, but at least we have some sort of price control on the rent that they're charging to young people. I'm open to that discussion, but rent controls have problems of their own. They lead to deterioration in the, in the in the state of the property. It's very famous what they did to New York City, for example, in the 1970s. So these, so this is a really good example of a problem that when you then go and you go, okay, well, how can we mitigate or solve this? You start to find that it's such a basic structural problem that there aren't many ways to mitigate and solve. You it. get BlackRock and other firms that are launching. Uh, funds that accumulate single family homes as asset pools that then, as you point out, pension funds and insurance companies, which are in effect indemnifying people in their old age, <laughs> can invest in that. And that, that drives up housing prices and freezes out, um, freezes out young people. And I think, as you point out, there's a kind of phenomenon where in places like London or New York, the only hope is that you have you have parents who have assets and then the parents make the down payment or buy the home and rent it out, out at a very advantageous rate to their kids or something like that. Yeah, so 100%. And just on, on the BlackRock point, so let me, um, let me wax my mustache here as the guy who worked in finance for 10 years and defend BlackRock. I don't think it's actually BlackRock's fault. It's, it's, the, the fact of the matter is that if you're working for BlackRock, your, your mandate is pretty simple. It's you're given a bunch of pension funds and you have to earn an annual return on those pension funds. Call it 6% plus inflation, something like that. You need to make that, that, that return right. in order so that the pension can pay out of the pot. They're going into property not because they've become greedier or, or less regulated or anything like that. They're going in because they can't get the returns in other markets because it's already so saturated with capital. So what I'd really, I, I know that the BlackRock meme is kind of taking off right now and it's good. I want people to like understand that, but they need to, to see the man behind the curtain. And it's actually kind of granddad, you know, it's not, it's not actually, it's not the capitalist fat cap per se. It's actually a structural problem that is facing these companies. And then, as you say, that that's absolutely correct. On the one hand, you have, 
you have grand, grandpa's pension pot going into the Black Rock pools, which are then chasing down these properties in Dallas and so on. Um, but on the other hand, you have um, you have the kids trying to trying to get on the bandwagon in some way with the with the asset wealth that their that their parents or grandparents have accumulated. Now, this only works for I'd say at this stage probably slightly upper middle class people. I'd, I'd be yeah, very I think so. If I it works for the average middle class person, certainly not lower middle class or working class person. So this is exacerbating the social tensions. I think I mean, so. asset inflation. I, Property property price inflation simply just it intensifies the difference between winners and losers in the kind of in the twenty first century economy economies of the West. So it definitely I does, like and I'd say I'd country. say among the mid, the upper middle class kids who are experiencing this problem, who have a degree that might not be doing so well in the real world because the degree doesn't fit into the labor market so much, and they're told. We all know the story. I'd imagine that sitting around and living with mom and dad for too long is probably making you pretty radical, actually. Hmm. Well, you, um, you, you paint a kind of dystopic picture that as this generational, as, as, as population rising or new, younger generations decline in size relative to the older generations, and as assets, you know, tend to flow towards this older generation, greater tension will lead to either confiscation. I suppose passing laws for rent control would be a kind of confiscation of wealth. Um, but one could imagine wealth taxes, other kinds of methods of conf- confiscation or uh, even worse. Um, and it's already out there, this assisted dying um, theme where we, we hurry the elderly on to their eternal reward so that we young people can get, a, can get their stuff. Yeah, well, the, thing, the reason I go in that direction in the article isn't because I, I particularly want to write the next um, uh, uh, 1984 or what's the other <laughs> one? The, uh, it would be more similar to the other one. The um, Brave New World. Brave New World. Not quite, no. I mean, I'm open to doing a film script if anyone listening wants to commission it. But the, um, but the main point is the reason I go in the kind of dystopic direction isn't, uh, is, is simply due to the fact I'm just thinking about it in terms of economic resources. And just to circle back before going on to that, it's not just the rising asset values. It's also the fact that there will be less stuff. There will be less consumption goods to go around. And how that's apportioned will be determined by very complicated factors. But we can definitely say on average, those with the accumulated savings and positions in society will probably have access to more consumption goods than the workers making them, the younger workers. So this won't, this won't just be the asset markets we're seeing immediately, so it's easier for us to visualize in a way. Mm-hmm. I think it gets really hairy when the price of uh, bananas and stuff starts going up and, and dad can afford the banana, but you can't afford the banana, even though you're working and dad's on the golf course. That, that's when it gets really, I think that's when it gets really hairy. So um, just to emphasize that point, we're not just talking about the current dynamics that we're seeing now. It, it, it is likely to get much worse. And so the reason it kind of drives you in a slightly dark direction is because if you just think about it in those simple terms and you strip everything back and you ignore all the politics and the cultural aspects and everything like that, and you just say, this is a resource allocation problem. And if it's a resource allocation problem, then it can only be solved by reallocating those resources. And when you strip it back down to that level, as you say, there are only two ways to go about doing this. 
they are expropriation of property and income. That is one possibility. Or getting rid of the unproductive consumers. And there are simply, there are no other ways. If somebody wants to write into the magazine or something and suggest another way that doesn't, um, that doesn't involve colonies on Mars and sending the grandparents off to colonies on Mars, which will have their own economies and be funded. And so, there are no other way. So those are the only two possibilities in that scenario. The only other possibility is that young people accept their lot, which seems to me unlikely. So it does seem like what would be the simplest um, solution to these problems? I mean, I mean, th- those would be it. You're right. Rent control would be a very low level expropriatory socialist policy. Um, you could imagine much more radical ones. Certainly uh, among young people, much more radical ones are being discussed. I don't think they will help the situation. I think they'll probably make it worse, but they are being discussed. And, and those things are never done in a very planned way. It's always pretty pretty dumb okay and so it's it's probably going to make the situation worse and then the euthanasia trend is is actually very very worrying but the tra- the, the the thing about the euthanasia trend as well is it, it won't really solve the problem either i mean it, even if you if you put in those morbid terms i'm not endorsing euthanasia of the elderly to re- reallocate resources as i say in the article i think that is probably one of the darkest things you could imagine and if you if you read about it in some old you know historical work or in in the bible somewhere you'd probably go i'm not sure if that's a myth or not you know it sounds kind of crazy um, so I'm, I'm certainly not um, trying to normalize that uh, far from, but I'm just saying that even if they did it, um, as long as the birth rates continued to decline, it, it wouldn't, it would just be perpetual, you know, it would be a society winding down to a smaller and smaller population and speeding that up by scooping the cream off the top and throwing it in the garbage. So, um, but as I say, I'm not, I'm not trying to, trying to say this for the shock value or anything, although I realize as I said, if somebody wants to write a film script, it will make a very good one. But I'm, I'm more so doing it for, for the fact that there are no other ways. There are only three paths. Either the young tolerate their loss, they expropriate resources from the elderly, which, by the way, would probably mean something like some care home gulag system or something. I mean, that would be what it would end up as, right? You'd have minimal resource expenditure on the non-productive members of society. Or number three, you start... Um, you start uh, eliminating them. And that is probably the worst case scenario. But mm. no predictions, no crystal ball. But I, I just think it's it focuses the mind to think in that way. Well, it focuses us on asking ourselves, well, and I think you, you do a good job of this in the final sections of the piece, what is driving demographic decline? And you look at contraception, divorce, and what I would call the virtualization of intimacy. Contraception is kind of an obvious, that doesn't sort of self-explanatory. Um, and you point out that divorce has all kinds of deterrent effects. It's a disincentive to young people. They kind of look at, they look at marriage and family as a, a dangerous environment where it's full of peril, easy to make a misstep. So they're hesitant to enter in. Is that fair, a fair kind of summary of what you think is the effect of divorce? That's one component. Uh, Just before I talk about the divorce aspect, I I think I have something slightly original to say on contraception. I know it's kind of been done to death. It is widely, you know, it's no one disputes anywhere that I'm aware of that contraception is the main driver of uh, decreasing fertility rates. But what I think is actually quite interesting and most people don't know is that when the contraception debate began basically in the 1930s, 
economists were discussing the impact on the labor market uh, mm. in in Britain. Uh, and a very famous, two very famous economists called Roy Harrod and Joan Robinson had long letter exchanges on this issue and on the abortion question too. And and they were hammering out the fact of what this would mean for for birth rates and long term economic growth. It was never communicated to the public when those when those debates were going on. I just think it's a point of historical interest that isn't widely known. Um, on the divorce question, yeah, it's 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 a fascinating one. Again, um, I wouldn't say it's as widely known as as uh, as a driver of the fertility rate, but I think if you dig into the kind of sociological literature on it, it's 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 pretty. It's pretty widely known. Um, it could probably do with a book of somebody putting all the arguments together. Well, it uh, makes intuitive sense, you know. Like I say, if 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 the intimate life is a minefield, then some people and there are obviously powerful human instincts that encourage us to enter that, even if it is a minefield. But on the margins, people will sort of say, "Well, well, I'm not, I don't want to go there." Yeah, uh, and there's, it's, but there's, too, it's, too, it's too emotionally perilous. It's too dangerous. It's too likely to blow up on on me. Well, the other the other issue. I mean, I I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I'd say that I'd say that accounts for maybe 60 percent of the impact divorce has on fertility rates. The other issue is is actually is it's really simple. It's that um it's that uh, uh, girls of divorced parents are far higher to be uh, teenage pre- uh, teenage pregnancy. Um, and uh, uh, teenage teenage girls who get pregnant um, rarely have a fertility rate of more than one. Um, I mean, they might. Interesting. They, they, so they it's just, the opposite of what you think. Starting early means ending early. Well, a hundred percent. I mean, the, the the they find it very difficult to to find uh, partners that want to raise families effectively. I mean, that seems to be what the literature suggests. So just doing that alone will will tear down the fertility rate there. Then there are aspects, it seems, that they definitely get, um, children of divorced parents definitely get married at a much lower rate. That's 100%. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, and then the other, uh, the other impact it has is actually very immediate. It's, it's on people who get married and get divorced. It's that they tend, to, um, uh, they tend to enter the relationship slightly later. This is what the literature suggests. And then they, um, they, have, their first, they have their first kid it's 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 having the option on the table i think does this that they have their first kid maybe at um 30 or 31 or 32 and then they get divorced and then effectively a lot of these people will get remarried but they'll be beyond their peak childbearing years so um so even the the divorce rate even impacted the first generation if you see what i mean it didn't only impact the children the option having it on the table seems to impact the the immediate generation. So it has these multifaceted um, uh, impacts on the fertility rate, and I think that on top of um, on top of contraception uh, has uh, explains the current decline. Now, the third thing you raised is much, in my opinion, much more interesting. And um, you think that's going to turbocharge the decline? I th- I think that we are going to see. Um, so if you if 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 I'm going to be a boring yeah, there's economy. been a big drop in fertility in the United States in the last decade from basically replacement rate. We're down to now to, uh, to total fertility rate for women as something like 1.6 or something like that. And I could easily see us going down to South Korean levels. 
I, th- I think one. possibly lower. South Korea hasn't found a bottom yet. For reference, South Korea, I think, is 0.6 or 0.8. I mean, right. it's crazy. Right. Japan is somewhat similar. I, there's no bottom on that. The, uh, the South Korean birth rate hasn't fallen off. I just want to say, uh, in terms of the statistics, just to be a little bit boring on the details of the statistics, because I think if you think about it, 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 it's interesting intuitively. The current birth rate number still includes uh, your generation, your parents' generation, anyone still alive is still included in that birth rate, right? So um, the... Prima facie, it seems probable that the that as it ages more, that birth rate will fall, as you say, quicker and quicker. But I think that the the third aspect, what you called um, the virtualization of of intimacy, it will probably actually result in a cliff. I think that there right, but that's right. Just to clarify for listeners, virtualization what we're talking about here is the proliferation of dating apps and then online pornography. Um, and you make the very, you make the, uh, the marvelous, you call it the harems and peepholes, sexual culture, harems meaning. And I think, I think a lot of listeners of my age don't realize how the dating apps have created a ruthless ranking system of especially women according to their looks. Uh, yes, a hundred percent. Well, I, I would say that, um, maybe guys too. I don't know. I guess it goes both ways, but to your point that the people at the top of the rating system, uh, you know, have lots of options. People at the median and below, uh, have almost no options in the dating app market. The, the dating app, the way that I think about it is, and by the way, this, um, the, the effects on fertility of all we're about to talk about have not been studied. We don't know enough data on it yet. We'll know in five to 10 years, I think, pretty much. The the um, effect of the dating apps on, on people's relationships is very widely studied. Um, and there are some great studies out there. Uh, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I'm sure Google can help you out if you want to look them up. What the dating app has created is, I think, the most helpful way of thinking about it, if you know anything about anthropology, is it's effectively created a polygamous uh, culture. Now, obviously, I don't mean that in terms of marriage, um, but if you, if you think about it in structurally uh, anthropological terms, that you would have tribes or societies that would have a polygamous culture. Um, I think that these things have created effectively a polygamous culture. What the what the apps seem to show is that is that small numbers of men. It's not so much the women that are getting rated. It's small numbers of men uh, at the top, maybe the top ten percent or fifteen percent or something, are getting. 80% of the women and and it's like it's it's like polygamy right it creates this um it's very it's very ironic the, the way these uh dating advertise uh, these apps are advertised it's very much in terms of equality and all this kind of thing but this is like a patriarchy on steroids <laughs> this is recreating sort of the sultan and his harem i mean that is that is what it is and what what that's doing it's not just a kind of again i'm sounds like I'm thinking as an economist in terms of human resources in a sense. Partly, yes, that's true. But the, the effects that it's having are so clear that the, that the incentive is there for basically the, 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 the men that, that are able to take advantage of these systems to be um, extremely promiscuous, uh, not settle down, not form families and so on. And the women who go through the grinder in a sense are uh, probably pretty jaded by the end of it, I'm guessing. Um, and so they're probably going to have far less, uh, far less of a chance to to go off and, and form a sta- stable relationship. Not to mention the fact that 
that without being too high school hierarchy about it, um, the women that are being used by in the patriarchal system on steroids, some of them are probably, you know, batting above their average in a sense. And so that probably gives a full sense of, of their market for dating, as it were. Um, and then on the other side of it, so what happens to all the, all the schmucks, the 85% of uh, guys who uh, weren't on the, on the high school football team? Uh, I mean, they, they seem to, yeah, be turning to the um, pretty grotesque internet culture of uh, online pornography. Um, now, now this stuff has become like a peer-to-peer industry with some of the new um structures um so it's it's like a it's person to person you know it's not even it's everything's been turned into a transaction and it it's all pretty it's all pretty bad um and i would say as well i mean i i not i won't comment too much on the culture of it because i know i i know as much about it as every other person my age but um it seems to be generating massive resentment in that uh in that 85% group um I mean, we, the New York Times has been screaming about incels for a while. That's involuntary celibate. They're an online community. And I think those those people are probably people with uh, slight psychological issues and so on. But I think their their um, uh, their concerns are probably re- reflected in a in, in a lot of pretty normal uh, guys um, who, who are probably quite frustrated with that whole system. Um, so yeah, it's really, it's, it's definitely warping the culture. And I mean, if you're under 35 or under 40, you probably know what I mean. In fact, your best place to know what it it means if you're between 30 and 40 and you lived before and after these things, um, it's very, very obvious to you, the, the, the impact that these are having. So add all of that together and I'm not one to make too many predictions because, uh, they're usually worth uh, their weight in sand. But um, it does seem to me pretty likely that that's going to result in vastly lower family formation um, and, and therefore much lower birth rates. Probably plenty of um, single single uh, parents and so on of, of one child, but um, there'll probably be quite a bit of that. And I'd say that will even spread from the, the lower middle classes and working classes up through the social ranks. I'd expect that to happen. Um, but uh, I, it, the, the, the impact on the overall birth rate, I think, is going to be probably as dramatic in terms of percentage decrease as the contraceptive revolution. The, let's just, we can wrap up with the kind of 900-pound gorilla in all um, discussions of demographics, which is that all these economic and problems are typically the sort of dirty secret about um, the West is that the leadership class sees immigration as the solution. So we don't have enough people being born, so we'll bring people in. I is think, that fair? I think they did up until recently. I think the problem's got so bad now that the immigration thing has has been largely, you know, put to bed. Uh, definitely in the nineties and the and the early two thousands, maybe mid two thousands, economy was openly discussed as a. It was openly uh, discussed, but I think even if you go back, I, I think this is another problem of economists not uh, communicating what they're discussing behind the closed doors with the public, because they're usually not very good at communicating it. I think there was even probably some skepticism among economists then. I think they just said. There's no other choice. We have to do it. We have to give it a shot. And then people who were advocating for more immigration for other reasons 
took up the economics message and pushed them. And the economists, when they were consulted, just said, best we can do. Um, I don't think the, the economists ever believed that it would it would fully uh, solve the problem. I think they probably thought it would ameliorate it a little bit. I think even that has become um, become less. Well, it's become so politically toxic. It's become, um, yeah. I, well, this was the issue. I mean, anyone, anyone who looked at, even if you were standing there in 1995 during the Clinton boom years and, and, and you said, you know, immigration is going to solve this problem. Um, anyone with any common sense would say, surely there's got to be political limits to the amount of immigration that you can do. I mean, immigration throughout history, very large scale immigrations have precipitated social upheaval and war and so on. I mean, anyone with any historical knowledge would, would know how disruptive that could be. So it, 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 anyone with any sense would have known that there were upper limits to that. I guess, I guess maybe back in the rational days, it would have been, it would have been what's that upper limit and how much can it do to ameliorate the problems of demographic change? Um, I think we've now seen the hard limits of immigration. I mean, there's plenty of political parties in Europe that exist with pretty much a sole focus on immigration. Um, Brexit was largely an immigration issue, even if some people that support Brexit will continue to maintain that people were voting for a, a court in a, the high court remaining in Britain. I, I think most people were, were voting for immigration, especially the first time voters have pushed it over the edge. Obviously, it's become a, a huge hot-button issue in uh, American politics and, and is determining uh, presidential elections, shall we say. So um, so the, the immigration has political has political boundaries on it. Also, by the way, it, it's not um, using... It's not really because the immigrants wind up adopting the fertility habits of the native-born population and yeah, I, you, you, I think the economists. I think the economists, to give them credit, always assumed that. So that's why I think they were probably more skeptical. Not more skeptical. I don't want to say they were skeptical because they were promoting this for a long time. But I doubt any of them thought it would actually solve the problem. You know, and I, I guess you just kind of kicked the can down the road. Well, I think it was no. I think it was amelioration. Right? You have a big problem. It's going to happen. Wouldn't it be better if it was slightly less bad? Okay, and they saw that this would this would make it slightly less bad. I think what's happened in the past ten years is that the the secondary negative consequences of immigration have become more obvious to most people. And so, saying now you're now you're weighing up the less bad that the immigration does to the demographics problem with the um, with the political tensions, social tensions, and everything else we see after after a decade of uh, experimenting with truly mass immigration. Um, so I, I think now they have to do a balancing act on that. And I think most people would probably kind of, you know, hum and haw about that. So I, I think, I think, I definitely think we've peaked on the immigration debate. So I think that's healthy because now we can start talking about what the actual problem is and what, and even if we don't talk about solutions, I mean, I'm, I think there might be things we could do. I'm pretty pessimistic about it because it's such a strong, powerful economic and cultural force. But I, I think there are things that can be discussed, natalist policies and so on. But I think even just recognizing the problem so that we could have a rational discussion of how, how we deal with it rather than waking up someday and, you know, opening care home gulags like that probably. But if you don't do anything and you let a problem fester and you don't discuss it, that's where you can end up very quickly. And I think we don't want to go there. So we seem, Philip, to have come to a situation where it's exactly the opposite of what the Club of Rome um, proclaimed in the early 1970s, that the population the problem bomb. facing the world is the population explosion. Uh, 
but you conclude by saying that one of the great public policy challenges of the 21st century is how to encourage people to have children. Well, certainly in the developed world, um, the, the developing world has very high birth rates. Africa has enormously high birth rates. India has fairly high birth rates and so on. Um, but in the developed world, I mean, it's as obvious as, as day. You know, I think those population bomb debates, obviously it would be a whole other podcast. I think they were incredibly disingenuous for any <laughs> I really oh, don't. No, I don't. Disingenuous, no. We were being I really, I think they were, no. I think those fellas had something to sell. That's all I'm saying. I don't, I don't think that they were very serious from a statistical point of view. And if, anyway, any, anyway, they've made a movie out of it. It's called Soylent Green. So if anyone would like to make the depopulation Hollywood movie and get this into pop, popular consciousness, where I'm not sure. In Soylent Green, I think they, they eat people, but I'm not sure. Anyway, I'll leave that to the screenwriters. But <laughs> Well, Philip, thanks for your time and, and thanks for this wonderful discussion about a really intractable, difficult problem of, uh, of, of the birth dearth in the rich West. So thanks for your article and thanks for your time. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks a lot. It's fun. All right. Take care. See ya.